Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. The Chinese president calls for efforts to balance development and the environment on China's first National Ecology Day. Meanwhile, China's value-added industrial output has recorded a steady recovery in the first seven months of the year. And domestic movies are taking the lead as China's summer box office earnings hit another record high. You are listening to Bro Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Ge Anna in Beijing. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching Road Today. Chinese President Xi Jinping is calling on the whole society to protect the ecological environment together. Tuesday marks China's first National Ecology Day. President Xi urged efforts to balance high-quality development and high-level protection and accelerate the building of a beautiful China. So for more on this, let's bring in Dr. Yao Shujie, Chongkong Professor of Economics at Chongqing University. Thanks for joining us, Professor Yao. Professor Yao, Xi Jinping initiated the idea that uh, lucid waters and lush mountains are invaluable assets during an inspection tour in the eastern province of Zhejiang 18 years ago when he uh, served as the provincial party secretary. Could you please help us understand the timing of when the idea was first brought up? Why is vital to China's then and now? Yeah, about... 18 years ago, it's more precise, um, at the late, later half of the last century and early of this century, the Chinese economy was growing uh, exponentially. Uh, and the growth of the economy was actually depending on uh, industrialization, particularly the highly polluting industries. And that caused some uh, severe problems uh, in the environment, particularly in the water system, the air and also uh, the, the agricultural soils. So the, the pollution actually uh, is impinging uh, the kinds of uh, people's health and also the natural environment, the, the air quality and so on and so forth. And Zhejiang uh, obviously was one of the most advanced economies in, in China uh, by the provincial level. So Zhejiang uh, at the time was also suffering from this kind of problem. On the one hand, there was rapid economic growth. And on the other hand, the, the, the severe consequences of the environmental pollution, uh, as I mentioned, in the water system and the air. So uh, as party secretary of the province at the time, uh, Xi Jinping, he, he recognized the problem. Especially, he went to some places in the village where traditionally it was um, a fairly polluted uh, village. So he and the local government have some uh, fairly important element. Uh, building the village to a beautiful, uh, you know, countryside with the clean water and also the green, uh, flowering environment, uh, and it happened that the village turned out to be. Uh, fairly prosperous after the kinds of transformation from the polluting industrial base to a fairly beautiful village. And that gives some uh, fairly strong confidence for uh, the local government as well as the party secretary of the province at the time, Xi Jinping. He visited the village and he said, 
啊、呃、，in the Chinese proverb， 哎呢，啊，金山银山啊，不不如丽水青山。哎 ，it talking about the lucid water and the lavish mountain， 啊、uh, ，it means that this kind of good environment does not necessarily slow down the improvement of people's livelihood，、mm. the improvement of、uh, productivity。It is a very strong innovation in terms of idea of combining high quality economy。Goes with the environmental protection or improvement at the time. The village example actually、uh, has been carried over throughout Zhejiang Province. And once the、uh, Xi Jinping become the president of the of the country, he he think this、uh, Zhejiang experience could be expanded to the rest of the world, the rest of the country. Yeah. Professor, do you have any more examples that could serve as reflections of the idea? You know, lucid waters and lush mountains are invaluable assets over the past decade. Well, there are ample example. For example, the three North Belt they, they used to be very、uh, in a boat in terms of、uh, you know forestry and also desertization、uh, in the northwest part of China. In the northern China and northeastern part of China,、uh, the, I remember, and people also remember, not so long ago there was a, a, a you know storm,、uh, you know sandstorm actually、uh, blowing into Beijing city. Beijing suffered, you know, periodically these kinds of high polluting、uh, sandstorm, which has really、uh, devastating. And with the、uh, national effort at the local level, also、uh, people started to plant a、uh, lots of trees and also,、uh, you know, extend the、uh, you know livestock、uh, production in the in the forest area, and also growing、uh, grass to cover the the, the bald mountain. Uh, you can see that nowadays and also twenty years ago as a contrast. In Shanxi Province, I used to travel a lot, and also in 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 Mongolia, in uh in in Liaoning, uh also in Xinjiang. And they, and particularly the summertime, you will go there, you drive the car or take the train. You can see that on both sides of the road, there is all green area. But this is not the case twenty years ago. Twenty years ago, a lot of mountain, a lot of uh field, they were. I feel with a、um, uh, lots of、uh, you know sand and desert and、uh, other things which looks very miserable, and there's a, a tremendous improvement. This is probably the biggest example of the China's、uh, success in containing、uh, the deforestation and also the、uh, you know desertization. There are other example.、Uh, you look at the water system, a、uh, Yangtze River, Yellow River, and.、Uh, uh, Uh, you know, Pio River in the south.、Uh, all the all the river system, 15 or 20 years ago,、uh, the water quality was not、uh, suitable for consumption、uh, for human being or animal. Nowadays, I think、uh, lots of water, at least 80 to 90 percent of the water, they are classified as the so-called grade three、uh, or grade two water, which means they are suitable for consumption. It's not、uh, poisoning. The other example is my personal case.、Uh, I live in the countryside、uh, in eastern Guangdong. There's a village, 
uh, each time I went went home, I see the you know the deterioration of the water system. When I was a child, the water was very clean, and later on, it highly uh, polluted with lots of mud and also uh, dirty pollution. The water has changed the color uh, from white to black, basically. And um, over the last ten years ago, uh, even the village they started to change. The water system is now much better, although. It's not yet up to the original standard, but they are miles better uh, compared to 10 or 15 years ago. So across the country, I think the idea uh, that was initiated by uh, Xi Jinping and promoted by the uh, central government, the regional government, I think it has paid a very, a very high dividend uh, for the quality of people and the environment. Mm-hmm. Professor, I recall Sai Hanba, a man-made miracle turning desert to forest. But what economic benefit has such change brought to local community? Well, the gigantic, um, you know, benefit for this kind of changing from Sai uh, Hanba, which is in Chengde, in Hebei province. Hebei, you know, uh, has been renowned uh, for the, the high production of steel, the, the highly polluting uh, industry. And, um, you know, plus the kinds of desert uh, you know, surrounding, not too far away uh, in the big city like Chengde in Beijing. Uh, Han Ba is a, is a, is a totally exotic uh, uh, desert. You know, the area is huge. And uh, from 30, 40 years ago, I think some, uh, particularly the, uh, the, the urban educated uh, youth, they started to uh, work in Saihan Bar. And also the, the forest um, farm of Saihan Bar, they, they have a very long term uh, you know, effort in planting trees. Initially, it was very difficult. Uh, because they couldn't find a way to plant trees. So when the trees are planted, they die because of uh, the, the, they, they didn't have the appropriate way how to uh, nurture the tree to uh, maturity. And they found out the solution of uh, planting trees on the desert, of feeding with them with the water and the grow. Uh, and, and they changed the landscape. You know, the benefit is that it not only uh, stopped the... Uh, evaporation of water from the ground. It also captures water from the air. So the, the one positive, one negative drainage of water and positive of capturing water, a, a, you know, in terms of the ecological cycle, is a tremendous effect. And also the forestry, they bring economy value as well. Not, not only carbon captures, uh, but also they change the local environment they are suitable uh, for uh, people's, uh, you know, human being for the habitat, and also uh, they are suitable for agriculture, forestry, uh, as well as animal husbandry, and it brings a lot of effort uh, and, and benefit to the local resident. Uh, I mean, basically, people couldn't live there for survival before, and nowadays it become a very prosperous area for uh, the local resident. Mm-hmm. Professor, the idea of harmony between humanity and nature was mentioned in President Xi Jinping's statement. So how do you envision such a society? How far do you think uh, we are to that society? 
Um, we we have made tremendous progress for sure. I mean, due to the the effort that we have done in the new century, particularly after uh, a, you know 2012 when uh, Xi Jinping became president. Uh, but we are still uh, struggling, I think, because we have to have a balance. Uh, you know, we have to maintain a certain level of economic growth, and economic growth inevitably. Uh, you have to depend on industrial production and also uh, lots of other uh, human activity, which inevitably would be impinge on the natural environment and increase the emission of carbon dioxide uh, into the air. Um, on the other hand, I think technological progress has made the production system far more efficient in terms of per unit of output that requiring uh, a certain amount of emission. So um, technological progress and also the transformation of industry from the highly polluting industry to the less polluting industry. A third one is that the, uh, the replacement or the substitution of fossil fuel with renewable energy and so on and so forth. So we are making tremendous effort in every aspect. However, there's a, uh, because of the dilemma of economic growth and also the improvement of the natural environment, they cannot go in the same direction. So we have to try an ideal balance of how to maintain a certain level of economic growth without uh, devastating the natural environment any further. Professor, another piece of news I think worth mentioning is that according to the Ministry of Natural Resources, about 3.19 million square kilometers of China's land and sea areas have acquired biodiversity conservation status. How do you look at the significance of the move? What are the potential benefits of protecting these areas? Yeah, the concept, uh, the so-called biodiversity balance, it means that um, the emission of carbon dioxide into the water, actually into the air, and also the ability to uh, capture the carbon dioxide from the, the air, which is one of the major indicators. Of course, there are some other pollutants uh, in the system. So the more the area that we are able to achieve uh, in a, a biodiversity balance, the better the natural environment, not only Exchanging the climate change that we are suffering at the moment because the temperatures keep going up and up, uh, no, but also uh, you know human being health uh, like uh, you know respiration uh, diseases uh, due to the pollution into the air and also pollu- pollution in the water that can uh, tremendously damaging our health. So the the biodiversity balance is, is so important. I think after all. Human beings want to find a good way of living with uh, enjoyment of materials, but also with enjoyment of the better natural environment. So uh, China is making huge progress in this regard. It's the coverage of uh, green areas measured by the uh, plantation of trees, uh, forest trees, and also uh, grass on the, on, the, on the field. I think China has been increasing over time. In Chongqing, for example, uh, I remember eight years ago, the coverage of forestry was uh, something like 45%. And two years ago, it, it increased to 53%. And the aim is by 2025, the, the area will be increased to 55 or 57%. So this uh, 1% increase in the area of uh, greenness, it would have a tremendous uh, marginal effect 
on the local quality in terms of the uh, you know the water quality in terms of the air quality and also uh, the the living environment that we are uh, live there every day and the situation has changed I think the three point three point nine million square meter is quite a significant amount the proportion mm-hmm. of Chinese uh, national territory so this is a very encouraging and I hope it will continue to to become greener in the future. Thanks, Professor, for your insightful opinion on China's ecological conservation efforts. We look forward to seeing more China's dedication to achieving harmony between humanity and nature. That's Dr. Yao Shujie, Chang Kong Professor of Economics at Chongqing University. China's value-added industrial output, an important economic indicator, has recorded a steady recovery in the first seven months of the year. According to the latest figure from the National Bureau of Statistics, the country's value-added industrial output rose 3.8% year-on-year from January to July, with the raw material sector posting a relatively fast expansion. Officials say Chinese economy continues to recover amid persistent downward pressure, but also born of intricate international political and economic situations, insufficient domestic demand, and the need to further consolidate the foundation for economic recovery. So for more on the Chinese economy, joining us on the line is Professor Liu Baocheng, Director of the Center for International Business Ethics, University of International Business and Economics. Thanks for joining us, Professor. Yes, thank you. It was a pleasure. First of all, can you provide an analysis of China's economic performance in July based on the released data, especially in terms of industrial output and retail sales? How do these figures align with your expectations? There has not been much of a surprise because we can see that uh, the economy is still in the healing stage. And it's somewhat for behind my expectation that uh, the beginning of the third quarter could really come up with uh, uh, some of the boost uh, in the economy. However, uh, we can see that uh, the, uh, there is a mixed picture uh, over the entire performance. The retail has risen by 2.5%. And uh, as you mentioned, uh, industrial output uh, is something that is very encouraging. But uh, uh, on the other hand, the uh, real estate is still in a, a slump uh, spiral. The uh, import and export has fallen by 8.3%. And so uh, the uh, infrastructure development and uh, the manufacturing investment has also increased uh, significantly, uh, whereas the PMI uh, remains in the contraction uh, stage. The uh, consumer confidence has slightly picked up, uh, particularly when the uh, CPI is uh, still rather low at the moment. So it's really a mixed picture. I should say, generally, the economy is still rather resilient, but we uh, continue to face a number of headwinds. Professor, the service sector, especially modern service industries, has shown strong growth. What factors do you attribute to this growth, and how does it contribute to the overall economic recovery and transformation in China? Well, it means that, uh, particularly on the consumption side, 
the uh, consumers are getting more savvy and there are more of the innovative conception in line with the innovation from the producer side. And uh, uh, people are more prone to the uh, modern level service uh, from the electronics uh, driven by artificial intelligence to uh, some of the 3D entertainment, etc. So these are really something that can, uh, that can not only boost the younger generation, but also uh, you know older generation like like us are also uh, feel uh, feeling the uh, inspired because we just bought a a, a small robot and clean the floor. It really works uh, fine. So therefore, thanks to the uh, government support in terms of the high-end manufacturing and also the introduction of the uh, high technology uh, of the AI and also cloud computing, uh, it really uh, helped to ease some of the daily costs on the household work. And we can also see that uh, the uh, when we drive on the road, the uh, GPS is really working wonderfully uh, for every corner of the entire China uh, you may not know the road, but you just follow the GPS. You found the right place. And also for the access to more of the uh, information service and logistics service. So they are all combined to support a high quality growth in the construction side. Then how do you look at the trend in the manufacturing sector? Uh, we witnessed a slight slowdown in July. Could you elaborate on the trends and challenges faced by the manufacturing industry, especially concerning high-tech sectors and raw material manufacturing? Well, China is still uh, probably the strongest one in the entire uh, industrial mapping uh, for the uh, global market and the manufacturer is still the mainstay. So therefore, we can see the uh, investment in the uh, manufacturer uh, over, uh, overall is hit uh, by 5.7%. Uh, it really paves a solid, uh, solid base for the continued competitiveness of the manufacturer and um, in the meantime, we can see that the, uh, through the government subsidies and also uh, the uh, uh, innovative drive in this particular industry, uh, more of the high tech are really being introduced. They, uh, more of the not only consumer products, but also industrial products are being also uh, retooled for uh, the high quality manufacturer. So these are really something that uh, we feel very encouraging. And plus, they are also uh, shifting more onto the environmental-friendly manufacturer because we can see that uh, the uh, e-vehicles and also the uh, uh, e-batteries, they are also there uh, under uh, very rapid rise in terms of production. That can also help the Chinese uh, drive for its uh, export in the uh, in the industries that are uh, really there to welcome more of the environmental products. And particularly now we see that uh, Europe is introducing a number of measures uh, to encourage the import of uh, environmentally uh, funded products in which China can really have a, a far larger share. 
Thanks, Professor, for your valuable insights into China's economic landscape and the nation's recovery efforts. That was Liu Baocheng, director of the Center for International Business Ethics at University of International Business and Economics. More to come: UAE and India ditch dollar in their crude oil trade. This is World Today. We'll be back after a short break. Welcome back to Road Today with Mika Anna in Beijing. Preparations for the upcoming BRICS summit in South Africa are at an advanced stage. That's according to Anil Sukla, South Africa's ambassador at large for Asia and BRICS, who is overseeing the preparations. Sukla said they expect to welcome nearly 50 heads of the state and government to participate in the summit, making it one of the largest meeting of leaders from the global south in recent times. In an interview. With our reporter Xu Yawen, Sukla said the summit aims to show that developing countries can work collectively and provide leadership to build a shared future that will benefit all. Let's have a listen. Ambassador Anil Sukla, as South Africa's representative to BRICS, your job is to create all the conditions for a successful summit. So, could you share with us how the preparations are going? Well, South Africa has been advancing its uh, presidency of BRICS in a very positive、uh, manner over the past almost seven and a half months that we have been in the presidency. We have hosted a large number of meetings、uh, during the course of our chairship this year. We will host a total of close to two hundred meetings. A number of these, about twenty, are at the level of ministerials. And a large number of these are officials meeting and experts meeting, and of course the most important、uh, high-level meeting is the summit that will take place here in Johannesburg from the 22nd to the 24th of August. And、uh, we have been proceeding very well. We've、uh, had good outcomes from all of the meetings that have been held. On the twenty-second of August, we will have the BRICS Business Forum. It's the first in-person business forum of BRICS, where not only BRICS countries but countries from Africa and the global south have been invited. So we are expecting well over thirty or so countries to send delegations, the private sector, and the BRICS leaders will also address the closing session. Of the BRICS Business Forum, but itself、uh, will take place on the twenty-third, and we well prepared for that. All of the countries have been informed, and we have, as is traditional, the closed plenary session, and then the open plenary session. We'll have a report from Chair of the National Security Advisers on the meeting that they conducted. Pertaining to issues of security and、uh, the global geopolitical environment, we'll also have reports from the BRICS Business Council. The chair of the council will give an overview of the activities in the business sector, and we'll also have a report from the president of the New Development Bank,、uh, President Dilma Rousseff, who will give us an update on the activities of the bank and her vision for growing the influence of the bank. In the evening, President Ramaphosa will host a dinner for all of the BRICS leaders, and this is not just the BRICS countries, but the invited African and global South countries. 
It's reported that 40 heads of state and government have confirmed their attendance, and that number could rise to about 50. So, how significant is that to have nearly 50 heads of state to participate in a summit that represents the global South? And what are some of the pressing issues to be discussed during the summit? This is going to be one of the largest meetings of leaders from the global South in recent times. And it is the largest ever BRICS summit,、uh, with the Outreach、uh, BRICS Plus and Outreach program、uh, between the BRICS leaders and the Global South leaders. Now, I think this is highly significant and symbolic for a number of reasons. Firstly, that you have such a large number of countries wanting to be at the summit and regarding the BRICS summit as one of the most important、uh, geopolitical events. Of this year, now this summit is also taking place as the first physical summit post the COVID period, and it's also taking place within a very fractured and highly polarized global environment, where tensions between major powers continue to surface. So this summit brings together the global South as a grouping to reflect on how collectively. Countries of the global south can address the challenges that the global community, the geopolitical, security, the financial, economic, and trade issues, and how we can collectively act to shape the emerging new global order to ensure that it is multipolar, that it is reflective of the reality of 2023, and it is not reflective and functioning. In terms of the so-called Western liberal order that was created at the end of the Second World War in 1945, the world has changed dramatically. So, a number of BRICS countries, in terms of the size of the economy, the GDP, and the economic growth, is bigger than G7 countries today. The global South accounts for 85 percent of the global community in terms of population. And of that, half of that is BRICS countries. Forty-two percent of the global population is BRICS. So, in terms of the global population, we are the majority, and yet we continue to be marginalised. We continue to be outside the mainstream of decision making, and we are now saying that we need to reform the current global architecture to reflect the reality of the current world. And the global South will lead on this, and that is what this BRICS. Uh, summit is about to show that we can provide leadership, that we can work collectively together, and that we are open to working with all who want to work positively to create a better, more inclusive world. Speaking of the issues to be discussed during the summit, one of the highly anticipated topics is the BRICS expansion. What's the latest update on the matter, and what discussions have been held, such as? Principles, standards, or criteria for countries want to join in the block. Yeah, you're correct. At、uh, the Beijing summit last year, the leaders took a decision that we need to start discussions on expansion, and we need to start looking at guiding principles, standards, criteria, and procedure for expansion. And we should start this process through the Sherpa Channel. Now, starting last year on the China's chairship, we. Began this process, meeting at the level of Sherpa and Su Sherpa to discuss these issues. We've advanced very significantly. I think we're almost on the verge of consensus in terms of developing all of these 
standards and criteria. And we are due to have a Sherpa meeting this week to further consolidate uh, the report uh, so that our foreign ministers can meet prior to the summit and make a pronouncement uh, with recommendations to the uh, BRICS leaders at the summit. We expect the leaders to reflect on the question of expansion and to make an announcement around expansion. And uh, there are a number of very key countries from uh, emerging market developing countries that have asked to join countries like Argentina, uh, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Iran, uh, Indonesia, Egypt, Nigeria, Senegal. These are very important countries from the global south, and all of them are keen to become full BRICS members. So I think this demonstrates that BRICS is doing something right in terms of, of moving the world community forward in a positive direction. And I think expansion will also further strengthen BRICS. And lastly, Ambassador, there are some voices in the West saying that um, BRICS is an anti-West bloc that was created as competition to the G7 or the Global North. I'd like to hear what's your response to that. Well, it is them saying that. There is no one from the Global South, no one from the BRICS countries that say that BRICS has been created as an anti-West bloc, that we are created in competition to other uh, existing blocs. BRICS was created as a result of the five countries wanting to cooperate, to share experiences and work collectively to address our common challenges. And if you look at the five countries, and this extends beyond the five now, it's the global south, we all have the same challenges. And that is that we continue to be marginalized and treated that as outliers in terms of the global geopolitical architecture, in terms of the financial architecture. I mean, how is it that in this day and age, your Bretton Woods institution that was created in 1944, almost 80 years ago, that the heads of these organizations must be either from the USA or, the, or, or Europe. How can you then say these are global financial institutions? The world can't be exclusive. It has to be inclusive. And this is what BRICS stand for, building an inclusive a community of shared future, as President Xi refers to it, for the betterment of mankind, that we all work together to to build a shared future where all of us can benefit and live side by side in peace and harmony with each other, not trying to, to put down some countries and for the global hegemons to continue dominating power, to be bullying the poorer and smaller country and telling us how we should conduct our business on the global scene. The time has changed. Countries may be small, we may be poor, but we are not powerless. We now have realized the power of our voice and the power of collective action as the global south. That was Anil Sukla, South Africa's ambassador-at-large for Asia and BRICS. The UAE, United Arab Emirates, and India have completed their first-ever historic crude oil payment using their local currencies by passing the U.S. dollar. The transactions were made in India rubies and UAE dirhams for some 1 million barrels of crude oil between Abu Dhabi National Oil Company and India Oil Corporation Limited. Last month, the two countries inked a deal to settle trade in local currencies and to set 
up a real-time payment link to facilitate easier cross-border money transfer. So to delve into this, joining us on the line is Swarin Singh, Professor of International Relations at Jawaharlal Nehru University. Thanks for joining us, Professor. Thank you for having me on your program. Uh, could you elaborate on the recent agreement between the UAE and India to transition from using the U.S. dollar to setting the crude oil trade? What factors contributed to this decision? Uh, first of all, uh, it is important to understand that uh, UAE and India have very special economic partnership. Uh, UAE is uh, the largest export dev- destination uh, second largest export destination for India. And India is UAE's largest export destination. Uh, overall, UAE is third largest trading partner of India. And India lately has also signed free trade agreement with UAE. So they share very strong and uh, uh, important bilateral economic relationship. In that backdrop, uh, now last month, as you mentioned, they also signed an agreement uh, for uh, uh, use of local currencies in their transactions. And now, in that agreement is where this Monday, for the first time, India made rupee payments to Abu Dhabi National Oil Company uh, and likewise also paid in rupees for 25 kilograms of gold that was purchased. Uh, and that is significant because when it comes to UAE-India trade, Uh, 41% of UAE's exports to India are energy exports. Uh, And that makes it very significant if India can pay in uh, rupee terms. And indeed, there's a large number of Indians living in Middle East and particularly in UAE. And India last year received about uh, $90 billion of remittances from Indians abroad. Uh, And about uh, 40% of this comes from UAE. Again, that makes a large number of Indians living there or in bilateral trade requirement to purchase dollar uh, to do any exchange. And if they can avoid it, it makes it much more uh, uh, cost effective. It also makes it far more efficient to use those kind of transactions and could facilitate their investments as well into each other's projects. So I think it is part of that larger important relationship which is now moving towards what is the much of the world thinking your preceding program about BRICS, for example, again has de-dollarization as a very significant focus for their negotiations. And likewise, part of that global understanding that uh, world needs to come out of this unusual domination of dollar is where India and UAE are able to demonstrate that uh, they can move forward and and use local currencies in their transactions. Mm -hmm. Professor, we've seen the increasing trend of de-dollarization in various international trade agreements recently. How significant is this move by India and UAE to other nations globally? Do you see it as a reflection of broader geopolitical or economic shifts? Indeed, it is part of that larger global shift where repeatedly it has been felt that unusual advantage that United States has uh, by having dollar as its own currency, uh, expecting rest of the world to do all transactions and also have their national exchange, foreign exchange reserves in dollars. Uh, 
about four decades ago, uh, European nations had also made a similar attempt in, in launching euro, which is still there, but has not replaced dollar. Uh, nevertheless, dollar's significance and centrality has reduced over a period of time. I understand, particularly when it comes to national foreign exchange reserves, the share of dollar has come down from about 78% to, I'm told now, 57%. Of course, for international trade transactions, it is still fairly dominant currency, about 80% plus, some people even say 88%. That is where this initiative of several countries, uh, BRICS is uh, the leading group in that sense, but also individually each of these countries, uh, are working hard to find alternatives in first finding use of local currencies. For example, China's yuan is used in trade with so many countries that China has today. So fundamentally to reduce unusual dependence on dollar, especially in Ukraine crisis, the world has witnessed what we call weaponization of dollar. And in that sense, there is a certain concern that we need to also create alternative currencies and alternative payment systems in that sense. And, and it is part of that, that India and UAE are able to work together, given their great confidence that already exists, the partnership that already exists. They're able to move forward and begin to use local, local currencies uh, to contribute to that global trend where the whole world, much of the world is thinking of uh, finding alternatives to being only prisoners to dollar being the currency of transactions. Professor, with more countries' adoption of the Chinese yuan, as you mentioned earlier, for trade settlement and India's shift to settle trade in ruby with the UAE, for example, what kind of cooperation do you think China and India can have in this regard? I think, first of all, it is uh, very apparent that both China and India share this concern that there is a need to find alternatives to being dependent only on dollar as a currency of international transactions. At, the, at this stage in the beginning, most nations are trying to first take the first step in using local currencies. And we see China is using yuan as a currency for trade with several countries. India is trying to do likewise in terms of trade, for example, with Russia which has seen sudden rise from about eight to nine billion dollars to 44 billion dollars in the last two years in, in the context of Ukraine crisis. India is importing a lot of oil from Russia. Uh, so use of rupee is being encouraged by India. So fundamentally, China and India are on the same page that there is need to become far more autonomous from being exclusively uh, almost prisoners of one currency that is dollar. And that shows that they have similar understanding. Of course, in BRICS, China and India are working together in some of, on some of these issues and potentially might even think of uh, you know, creating an alternate, alternative currency, which is not necessarily to undermine or compete with dollar, but just to give an option to have one more currency for international transactions. And hopefully, if any group can potentially create such an alternative currency, I think it is BRICS. And in BRICS, China being the largest economy, India being the fastest growing economy, if they share the vision that there is definitely need to look for alternatives to dollar, 
then that whole understanding of de-dollarization, I think, will bring them together in coming years. Thanks, Professor, for shedding light on the topic of de-dollarization and the recent developments in crude oil trade and currency shifts between India and the UAE. That was Swarin Singh, Professor of International Relations at Jawaharlal Nehru University. China's summer movie frenzy keeps growing as the world's largest film market continues to see records being broken since over 40 new movies have hit the theaters starting from June. The country's summer box office earnings have already hit a record high of over 2 billion U.S. dollars. According to the country's ticket data platform, Mao Yan, the daily box office during the current season has exceeded 100 million yuan, or about 14 million U.S. dollars for 50 consecutive days, setting a record for single-day box office sales in Chinese film history. So for more on this, I earlier talked with Cheng Jimeng, Associate Professor of American Studies at Beijing Foreign Studies University. Let's have a listen. Professor, among the numerous new releases this summer, is there a specific domestic film that personally resonates with you? What aspects of that film, whether it's story or themes, made it special in your eyes? Uh, well, absolutely. I think uh, one film stands out most prominently, and that film is Chang'an. This is a film production that really impresses me the most, and also my friends, for a lot of reasons. I think first thing first, it's because the film is so much inspiring based on this very traditional Chinese story around this very iconic poet, uh, Li Bai. And so characterization-wise, uh, story plot-wise, and as well as thematically, the film is such a huge success in terms of touching, in terms of touching the hearts of the audiences like me as well. I mean, uh, I'm one of those who actually visited movie theaters for two times to check out this very film. When I look around in the movie theaters, I see movie audience members in terms of all stripes, young and old, men and women. And it is quite a spectacle for me to see so many moviegoers back in movie theaters again. Indeed, many of the films, including the one you mentioned, Chang'an, have caused heated discussions at the social level. With such a situation, could you share a moment during this summer movie season when you realize the impact that Chinese domestic films were having on audiences? I think, yes. I mean, one of the most um, important and interesting phenomenon is that um, movie theaters are packed again and filled with, let's say, movie buffs again. In a sense, I think the impact of Chinese domestic films are actually so very much influential and so amazing. It's because I think Chinese filmmakers are exploring and delving more deeply into the very treasure house of traditional Chinese culture, Chinese history, and Chinese mythology. And once again, take Chang'an, for example. It was the first time, I think, a local a Beijing-based animation film company managed to dig so deeply into this very treasure house and into one of those most glorious dynasties. I mean, Tang Dynasty, absolutely, is, is the one that they actually tried to highlight. This homegrown movies digging back into the treasure house of Chinese culture, mythology, and history is, I think, um, something to be identified and something to be attended, something to be, in a sense, um, emphasized at this very point on Chinese movie goers again.
But Professor Wu Wenis' Hollywood movies, such as Barbie, are also very popular in China, especially among young people. But this summer's Chinese films have been overwhelmingly dominated the box office. Can you elaborate on the factors that you believe have contributed to the remarkable success of Chinese domestic movies during this summer movie season? Well, Barbie, yes, and Barbie. I actually checked out Barbie in movie theaters, but Barbie has was not that very well attended.、Um, I don't see as many moviegoers as I saw back in、uh, some of those domestic movie films running in movie theaters. I think the chief reason is because the Chinese audience are increasingly kind of a fatigue. I mean, in watching Hollywood productions. Ever since 2017, I mean, re- remember some of these big blocks, mega blockbuster films. Like the Transformer and many of those,、uh, and even this year's Mission Impossible, they are running out of favor of the Chinese、uh, filmgoers be- simply because that there is this what we call the aesthetic fatigue. People are so very much tired by the Hollywood、uh, materials, such as car chasing and、um, actions, and also this very Tom Cruise. Hegemonic style、uh, in terms of traveling and fighting all around the world. They, to them, Hollywood is fighting in a borderless war. I mean, the whole world can be their socio-political scenes. So, for Chinese moviegoers, they're so very tired of those、uh, so-called special effect. In fact, that we are more closer to the kind of realistic depiction of characters. Characters like Li Bang, characters like Gao Shi, and also this historical、um, uh, kind of reenacting of these very historical events. Professor mentioned the change of Chinese audiences and their preferences. How about the evolution of Chinese film industry over the years? How does this summer's movie frenzy and the dominance of domestic films compare to previous years? Are there any notable differences that have caught your attention in this industry? Well, yes and no. No, because I think Chinese movie industry is evolving continuously in a very, very self-sufficient manner. And take, for example, the Wandering Earth, which was running in movie theaters in the first half of the year. And so you can see these Chinese theme movies,、uh, even in in the sci-fi movie、uh, The Wandering Earth, or even the historical epic made by Zhang Yimou. Uh, the Red River trilogy, and so in this in this case, I see the continuity of Chinese movie industry developing along the line of digging deep into its own culture. I mean, this kind of a self-reflecting upon its own culture, and made these historical materials the very source of inspiration for them to create the new genre of film. The Wandering Earth is one.、Uh, I mean,、uh, Man Jianghong by Zhang Yimou is also one、uh, that I can cite at this very point. This this very Chineseness, I would call it the Chineseness. This strong reliance on the Chinese material instead of、um, the co- the former co-production films.、Uh, co-production film proved to be such a failure. I think back in the past, I don't think that they will continue to succeed. And so I would rely on. These Chinese theme films, which I think is also one of the chief factor that really、uh, helped Chinese film to achieve this very to achieve this very dominance、um, in this very,、uh, I mean, over the years and especially in this very summer. And so the evolution 
starts back, I mean, even pre-COVID years, uh, starting from the Wandering Earth and starting from some of those very, very uh, realistic films. Uh, I mean, some of these films made by young directors, for example, Yang Lina's Mom, and uh, it was a great film, tried to focus on the reality here, out there on the street, in our community, in our home, about the aged mother, I mean, but about the aged population. And so um, uh, I think the, the dominance, the dominance domestic film actually has a reason and uh, Chinese film continue to, in a sense, to dominate, and there is, there's, a, there's a market for them to stay. Then with the significant box office earnings and the popularity of domestic movies this summer, do you foresee any potential shifts in the Chinese film industry's approach to content creation and marketing in the future? Yes, I um, think there's going to be a very, very important shift. I think take The Wandering Earth, and as well as um, Chang'an, for example. I think Chinese filmmakers are increasingly creative and innovative in terms of uh, uh, using the modern technology. And take animation, for example, uh, special effects, for example, the the so-called the FFX, for example. I mean, they are uh, important tools now ready for service of Chinese filmmakers to make actually really Chinese-themed film, Chinese-themed films by actually using these uh, technology to try to create a larger audience. Chinese audience are no longer that kind of simple-mindedness, simply watching a story unfolding, but they want to see more in terms of characterization and in terms of using technology to help to create that very character and to make that story more interesting. And so this is kind of an interesting potential shift backed by technology, the kind of a technological advance helping this very uh, shift. Marketing-wise, we have online streaming. They are quite uh, involved in in terms of um, distributing and marketing and helping in terms of previewing, which was very much kind of a conducive to creating a large fan base for certain directors and certain movie themes. Uh, I think that uh, there, are, there are several very, very interesting movie IPs now set up in Chinese film industry, which are actually being marketed in a very, very positive manner. I mean, Chang'an, for example, this um, light chaser, uh, in fact, film production company, was very much going to be in tune with this very current market. I mean, they may not be the kind of old studio-like, but they are very much kind of innovative and, uh, and spearheading into this unknown region in creating more visually appealing. So in this case, I see more film narrative shift beyond this additional way of telling a story. That was Cheng Jimeng, Associate Professor of American Studies at Beijing Foreign Studies University. That's all the time for this edition of World Today with me, Anna. Thank you so much for listening.